Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise the Lord. Lord, I ask now that you would bless this preaching of your word. Give me a mouth to speak. Give all of us, including me, ears to hear. And I pray that we would not engage in the next 45 minutes as spectators. I pray that you would deliver me from any and all temptation to think that that I am up here to keep people engaged. Lord Jesus, it is you we need to hear from. It's you that we ask to speak. And I pray that in my feeble human jar of clay words, your treasure would shine forth. For your glory, I ask. Amen. On Monday this past week, we marked a holiday, a day of remembrance where we honor the memory and the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Church, we rightly honor Dr. King. I hope you took some time on Monday to think about the significance of his work, what he did. He, he laid down his life in the fight against racial segregation, uh, combating through nonviolent resistance one of the greatest evils in our country's history. And the connection between Dr. King and our current sermon series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation may surprise you. It certainly surprised me. Um, On October 31st, 2017, I saw an article. It was written that day. I think I saw it a little bit later. 
But it was in the Washington Post, and it was an article by Micah Edmondson entitled, listen to this, How the Protestant Reformation Led to Martin Luther King Jr. Well, that's not a connection I expected to make, so I kept reading. Listen to what Edmondson had to say. The story begins in 1934 when King's father traveled to Berlin to attend the Fifth Baptist World Alliance Congress. There, he and 29 other black ministers helped racially integrate the Congress in the face of a color ban. They also condemned the rising anti-Semitism they saw in, in Nazi Germany. And while in Berlin, Michael King Sr., as he was then known, learned about Luther's denunciations against the injustices of the medieval penitential system. Luther's struggle resonated with King, who wondered what such boldness might mean for racial injustice in the United States. Luther's legacy left such an impression on King that he changed his name. And the name of his then five-year-old son to Martin Luther King. Although King Sr. would go on to make his own courageous stand for social justice, his son's life and legacy was destined to more closely mirror that of the monk from Germany. I had no idea. And Edmondson goes on to point out numerous parallels between the way both Luther and King Jr. protested, quote, the social devastation of false doctrine. So for Luther, it was the evil of indulgences, the, the idea that you could, you could buy forgiveness of sins preyed on the poor's fears of punishment in the afterlife. And for King Jr., it was the evil of racism. So this, this idea that that white men and women are somehow inherently more valuable than black men and women, King knew that that stands in stark contrast to the clear teaching of Scripture. Dr. King knew that the final chapter in the entire storyline of redemption insists on the exact opposite. Listen to these words from Revelation 7, church. Verse 9, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Racial justice and reconciliation really matter, church. They mattered in Dr. King's day. They matter in our own day. And they matter because there's a unity in diversity that reflects and reveals the manifold glory of God in a way that would not happen if we all looked the same. 
And by the way, that's exactly what heaven's going to be like. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice what the heavenly multitude is saying. What, what their di- diverse but united voices are proclaiming. What, what are they proclaiming? One thing, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. They're not singing the praises of diversity. They're singing the praises of God. And that's precisely what the solas of the Protestant Reformation, as we've been studying them for the last two months, have really pushed us to recognize, is it not, that salvation belongs to our God. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Why do I say that? Well, because the authoritative word of God tells us that our salvation is what? It's through faith alone, it's by grace alone, and it's in Christ alone. That's why we say salvation belongs to our God. And there's something at stake, church, in our decision to believe or reject those solas that's far more important And immeasurably more significant than whether or not we're just going to be identified as a Protestant church or a Reformed church. Well, if you want to be identified as a Protestant church, you've got to get in line with these things. Five solas. It's pretty much all that's at stake. No. No. The same thing that's at stake in our decision to believe or deny these solas is the same thing that's at stake in the battle for racial justice and reconciliation. You know what it is? It's the glory of God. That's what's at stake. I mean, why do the angels in Revelation 7 ascribe blessing and glory to God? Why do do they do that? Well, they do that because the salvation of men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every people belongs to God and God alone. That's why they do that. There's a fundamental God-centeredness to all that God has done, all that God is doing, all that God will do in saving us that ensures God alone gets the glory. And so the fifth and and final sola, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Church, it's it's the glue, if you would, that binds all the other solas together and keeps them rushing onward to their appointed end, the glory of God. And I think that few passages capture all the solas and, and keep their appointed end and goal in view better than Ephesians chapter 1. And it's worth remembering that that in most of Paul's epistles, his letters, this is a letter to the church in Ephesus, most occasions after greeting people, he launches into an expression of thanksgiving and gratitude for the recipients, the people he's writing to, but not so in this letter to the Ephesians. He greets the church, but then immediately, without without the slightest hesitation, he launches into this declaration of praise to God that produces one of the longest sentences in the entire Bible. You don't see this in English, but in the original language, this is one sentence. 
If you're taking English classes, don't look at this as an example of comma, comma, comma. Babe. He can't shut up. That's the point. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 2. And then it's like his heart explodes. Church, it's though the, the entire array of all that God has done for Paul and all that God has done for the Ephesians just comes rushing into Paul's mind. And all he can do is cry out in a loud voice, blessed be God. That's all he can do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know what this sermon series has been an exercise in? I would argue it's been an exercise in remembering our spiritual blessings. Because in Jesus Christ, God has blessed us beyond our wildest imagination. But I hope as we've been going through these, you've remembered and even begun to realize that that those blessings have a point. Those blessings have a goal. Those blessings have an ultimate aim, if you would, that's outside of us and greater than us. And Paul sees it. Paul gets it. What's he get? Well, he recognizes, I think this is the main point of this entire sentence, that the glory of God in the good of his people is the goal of our salvation. That's what he sees. That's what he gets. That that there's a point, there's a goal to all these blessings from God. And it's the glory of God in the good of his people that's the goal of our salvation. That's that great aim. The fundamental purpose of all that God is and does is the praise of his glory. And I think Paul presses us to make that conclusion and, and really compels us to join him in his song of praise By making two simple points. And you may think, Matthew, you're crazy. All these verses, you've got two points. We're going to stick with the big picture. No no way we can preach through this at the level of detail we did in our series in Ephesians. But I think sometimes the big picture is exactly what we need. So here's the first point. Point number one, our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. So in verses 3 through 14... I told you we're dealing with one long sentence, but there's actually a structure here. Verses 4, 7, 11, and 13 mark out the four headings, three of which begin with these words, in him. And every time you see that in him, Ephesians 1, no, that refers back to verse 3, and the one person in whom and with whom we have to be in close relationship, intimate fellowship, if we're going to experience every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friend, hear that. There is no such thing as a genuine spiritual blessing that exists apart from knowing Jesus Christ. No such thing. That phrase, in Christ or in him or in the beloved, appears seven times in 12 verses. 
And it's the reason the Protestant reformers rightly insisted that our salvation is what? It's in Christ alone. It's so clear. We we don't get to, to choose from a lineup of options when it comes to accessing the spiritual blessings of God. The spiritual blessings of God are not like a menu where you get to go and say, you know what, I'm kind of hungry for this today. I'd sort of like that. It's sort of like this, sort of like that. No. Either you remain apart from Christ and you receive no spiritual blessings or you come near to Christ, you become a follower of Christ and you receive every spiritual blessing. And don't miss the significance of that one little word, every, okay? Because that's big. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting Jesus to make you right with God instead of trusting your own works to make you right with God, then know this. God hasn't just given you, friend, the best spiritual blessings or the cream of the crop of his spiritual blessings or the most important spiritual blessings. He's given you every imaginable spiritual blessing. In other words, for all eternity, you're never going to discover a single spiritual blessing that you could possibly want or need that you don't already have in Jesus Christ. Think about that. I mean, we sit here on a Sunday morning and there's so many things that we can think of. I'd like to have that. I don't have that. I want to have that. I don't have that. When it comes to spiritual blessings, you know what your king says over you? He says that if you're in Christ, you have already got every spiritual blessing. You're not waiting or lacking or sitting around for God to get his act together and, and send a few more your way. You have in Christ every spiritual blessing. To illustrate this, how many of you ever participated in an Easter egg hunt? Don't be bashful. Adults are like, didn't do that. Yes, you did. Yeah, okay, a lot of us. So spiritual blessings are like Easter eggs. Paul's saying that coming to Jesus is like being the kid who opens the mailbox when all the other kids are running around in the yard and discovers to his joy and amazement that all the Easter eggs are in the mailbox. Including the golden one with the dollar inside. God hasn't scattered his spiritual blessings here and there and everywhere. And we have to kind of go around and wonder if there's over here. I don't know. No. They're all in the mailbox. They're found in Christ. Nowhere else. So, so what are these blessings? What are these blessings God's given us in Christ? Well, I told you there were four headings. Let me give them to you. Four categories. First, God chooses us for adoption in Christ. He chooses us for adoption. Verse 4, look there. Paul reminds the Ephesians that there is only one explanation for the presence of genuine saving faith in their life. You know what that is? It's the sovereign grace of God. One explanation. Now, none of us naturally want to follow God. None of us naturally want to do anything with God. The the only way we will ever choose to follow him and choose we must is if he first chooses to make himself known to us, to change our hearts, to, to draw us to himself, to give us faith to trust and power to obey. And by the way, friend, if it's been a long time since you first became a Christian, remember this today. That occurrence is a miracle. That's a miracle. 
It doesn't matter how dramatic your conversion experience was on the outside. You could have been a drug dealer before you were saved from sin and death. You could have been a self-righteous Pharisee sitting in the pew before you were saved from sin and death. You know what? Bottom line, at one point in your life, if right now you were in Christ, King Jesus came after you. He broke in when you weren't looking for him. And he did it. He chose you for salvation because it pleased him to do so. And he purposed to do so before the world was created and you had done anything, whether good or bad. That's humbling. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Not, Not generally, generically, but specifically and personally. He planned to to make you his very own child, a son or daughter of of the king. And listen, God, God chooses to adopt us, not because we are worthy of the Father's affection in and of ourselves, but because he graciously decides to see us and relate to us for who we are in Christ, who is infinitely worthy of the Father's affection. So he chooses us for adoption in Christ. That's the first category. Here's the second. God redeems us from sin in Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What's the Bible teach us? Well, it teaches us that sin isn't just something we periodically do. or kind of stumbled in. Like, well, Wednesday was a tough day. I kind of got into some sin. Well, maybe you did, but sin, left to ourselves, isn't just something we do, friend. It's our master. It's in charge. It's it's ruling and, and reigning, controlling your life. So we like to think that we're in control, right? That we can just stop doing that thing that we know we shouldn't do whenever we want to. That's craziness. Because sin isn't just something we do. It's our master. We're enslaved to it. And the only way we can be redeemed from slavery to sin is if God removes the guilt of our sin and God breaks the power of our sin. And that, by the way, is exactly what Jesus did when he shed his blood for us. He removed the guilt of our sin. He broke the power of sin. He he carried our transgressions. He bore our guilt. He died so we wouldn't have to die. And because he died, we can be forgiven. So where guilt is gone and and forgiveness reigns, sin, hear this, is no longer our master. It's, It's the grace of God that sets us free, takes those shackles off to love and fear the Lord. And the fact, look back at verse 7, that we're forgiven what? According to the merits of our conduct. No. Gotcha. No. According to what? The riches of his grace. Well, that reminds us that we never merit the favor of God, even on our best days, okay? It's only because of the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, that we can ever know the eternal favor of God. All we have, all we ever receive from him, it's a gift of grace. And it's in view of scriptures like Ephesians 1.7 that the Protestant reformers rightly insisted that our salvation is what? It's by grace alone. Not just in Christ alone, it's by grace alone. So so God redeems us from sin in Christ. Category three, God grants us an inheritance in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained 
and inheritance. I have yet to receive an inheritance. But I know what it is. And I know fundamentally an inheritance is not something you have earned. Right? No matter what kind we're talking about. Whether you think you were the best child in the family or the black sheep in the family, you ever get an inheritance, that's not money you earned. It's a gift. Do you know our inheritance in Christ is exactly the same? It's a gift, and that starts with the gift of eternal life. It's not something we earn. It's something God grants his children as a gift such that death is no longer the final word over your life. So what's that mean? Well, that means that when you die in this life, friend, if you are a Christian, then your spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord, to enjoy his presence, waiting for the day until Jesus returns, comes back, making a new heavens, a new earth, where righteousness reigns and sin is no more. And on that day, this is really good news, we're all going to receive new bodies. New bodies. Can't wait to see your new body, Doug. Can't wait till you have no more back pain, Barb. They're not going to decay. They're not going to wear out. And the Father is going to reward you, Christian, on that day for every act of obedience you ever performed in this life. That he enabled you to do, by the way. And you'll live forever in the presence of the God who made you to know him. So so what's this inheritance? Our inheritance is nothing less than life as it was meant to be. That's what it is. And we know that's guaranteed because of the fourth category. What's that? God doesn't just grant us an inheritance in Christ. He seals us with the Spirit in Christ. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed, see that, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. How many of you have ever bought a house or bought a car and you had to take out a loan and you had to make a down payment? Be familiar with that, a down payment. Yeah, well, sometimes you don't have to, but many times you do. So so what's a down payment? Well, a down payment is money that you as the buyer give to the seller up front as a promise that the rest of his money is coming. It's a pledge. You're not going to leave him hanging. You're going to pay him back. Christian, God has promised you an eternal inheritance. And check this out. He has given you nothing less than himself, his very own presence, as the pledge, the promise, the guarantee that he's going to make good on his word. He cared so much that you would know the certainty of your inheritance that he didn't just give you his stuff. Gold ring nice house. He gave you himself. The Holy Spirit. And if he's living in you and dwelling in you, which is the exclusive gift of every Christian, 
and not a gift we know or experience apart from coming to Christ, then that is your guarantee that the rest is coming. He seals us with his spirit and his credit rating is perfect. He always does, right? God always does what he says he's going to do. So what are these blessings? Four categories. The Father chooses us for adoption in Christ. He redeems us from sin in Christ. Grants us an inheritance in Christ. Seals us with the Holy Spirit in Christ. There's a common word in all those phrases. And every person of the Trinity is involved. Hope you noticed that. So, so what do these verses prove? Ephesians 1, 3-14, what do they prove? Well, they prove undeniably, church, that our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. It's a work of God from start to finish. All those things that we just reviewed that God does, those are things God is doing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He, he recognizes that our salvation is a work of God from start to finish, but then he rejoices in a massive implication. What's that? Point number two. When God does the work, God gets the glory. It's not rocket science. There's a, it's a long sentence, but it's really simple, okay? Our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Second, when God does the work, God gets the glory. So what's Paul teaching us here? He's teaching us that there's only one right response to the divine decree that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Through, through a work of salvation that, that we could never accomplish for ourselves, but God has accomplished for us from beginning to end. What's that response? What's the response? Praise be to God. Glory be to God. Blessed be God. Why? Because where God does the work, God gets the glory. Now let me prove that to you as best I can. There are at least, I counted them in the original language, 10 different activities in verses 3 through 14 where God is the subject. God has blessed us, verse 3. God has chosen us, verse 4. God's bestowed favor on us, verse 6. God has predestined us, verses 5 and 11. God has lavished grace on us, verse 8. God has made his will known to us, verse 9. God has set forth his purpose for us, verse 9. God has united us, verse 10. God has worked in us, verse 11. God has sealed us, verse 13. Do you know how many activities there are in these verses where we are the subject? Two. Two. And they're both found in verse 13. We hear the gospel. We believe the gospel. That's it. And it's why the Protestant reformers rightly insisted that our salvation is by faith alone. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel. Hear of the truth of God's spiritual blessings in Christ, believe that God will grant you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Hear it, believe it. Unless we think that that is some work of merit, Ephesians 2.9 reminds us that the power to trust Jesus, to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, to exchange trust in our good works to make us right with God, for trust in Christ to make us right with God, that power, that faith, that too is a gift from God. Look it up, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So, so our salvation is his work from start to finish. 
And so it comes as no surprise that, that Paul declares three times in this sentence that our salvation is what? To the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. So if we did the work, we would get the glory. But because God does the work, God gets the glory. And here's what's so amazing, friends. God's glory and our eternal good go hand in hand. Hand in hand. But here's where we need to be careful. We need to be very careful here. As we think about this great aim and goal of of all God's work. God's glory, when I use that phrase, when Scripture uses that phrase, it's not, please hear this, something first and foremost, that we give to God. Okay? Glory is a statement of who God is and what God reveals about who he is. Glory is who he is and what he displays. James Hamilton says it this way, the glory of God, what is it? It's the majestic, the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is. Feel that. And the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself. So it's both what? It's both one of his attributes, he's glorious, and it's a way of describing the perfection of all his attributes. So so his holiness is glorious. His justice is glorious. His wisdom is glorious. His love is glorious. Now, now why is that important? Why do I say that first and foremost, glory is about who God is and what God reveals about himself? Here's why I make a big deal of that. Because I think we have an incessant tendency to think of the glory of God as first and foremost something that we give to God and thus something that he gains or loses depending on whether we honor him or despise him. I think that's how we default to thinking. But that's, that's not what the glory of God is like, friends. Hear this. You cannot add to or take away from the glory of God. Think about that. You know what you can add to or take away from? The glory of man. So let me give you an example. Lord willing, there may have been some prayers in my dinner around my dinner table to this effect this week. The Philadelphia Eagles... (laughs) are going to gain some serious glory tonight. Come on. Get an amen to this by winning my NFC championship. Oh, yes. (laughs) And if they win, when they win, they're going to possess, Lord willing, a glory as NFC champions on Monday morning that they did not possess when they woke up this morning. Lord willing. And in that sense, Lord willing, they will have what? 
gained glory. Gained glory. Why is that not what God's glory is like? God's glory is is not like that because God doesn't change. Okay? He doesn't change. His, His glory doesn't ebb and flow like ours does. He doesn't gain trophies and lose trophies. He is eternally glorious. He couldn't be more glorious than he is right now, and he'll never be more glorious than he is right now. He's eternally glorious and could not be more so. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, hold on. I thought at that hill called Calvary, he became a savior. Friends, God didn't become a savior. He has always been the one and only savior. He revealed his saving power, but he didn't gain new glory on that day, but he displayed it for the ages. So when Paul says that our salvation is to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace, what's he saying? Well, he's saying, listen carefully, that in accomplishing the work of our salvation, the all-glorious God has expressed his glory and revealed his glory in such a way that we can perceive his glory and praise his glory. Now, Notice in verse 6, 12, and 14 that Paul never speaks of the increase of God's glory. He does speak of the praise of God's glory. So when Paul says... Blessed be God, he's not adding to the worth of God, but rather he's perceiving and exalting in the worth of God. And as Edward Lee says, we don't don't glorify God, hear this, by putting any excellency into him, but by taking notice of his excellency and esteeming him accordingly. Therefore, hear this, sola Deo Gloria, doesn't describe a glory that we give to God in response to his saving work on our behalf. Sola Deo Gloria describes the divine glory that God himself reveals through his saving work on our behalf. I love how David Van Drunnen says this. There is, he writes, an ironic popular tendency to speak of sola deo gloria as if this Reformation motto were primarily about ourselves. Is that not ironic? And the way we act and shape, live, our moral and cultural agendas. While God's glory should indeed be the Christian's chief motive and goal in all our conduct, we must remember above all that glory is the Lord's. Amen. And that in all his works, he glorifies himself. With this truth at the center, we are able to recognize our call to glorify God for what it actually is. God's work in us so that he manifests his glory through us. Now, why why is a God-centered understanding of sola Deo Gloria, so important. Well, here's where this message gets really practical, okay? Very practical. If you're a Christian, follow me here, that means something. That means there will never be a time in your life where there is not some measure of genuine God-given desire in your heart to glorify God through your life. 
The Spirit puts that there. It doesn't take it away if you're a believer. To, to honor God in your words and your thoughts and your actions. But, but if we're not careful, here's where this gets practical. Here's what happens. What, what ought to be a great joy, I get to glorify God through my life. I get to perceive and exalt in the worth and weight of who he is. Well, that becomes very quickly an exhausting and discouraging, oppressive burden. What do I mean by that? We find ourselves thinking things like this. I wonder if I'll ever be able to really glorify God. I sure, I sure wish I could be one of those fathers that glorifies God. It's so hard for me to glorify God. I don't think I have the strength to to keep on glorifying God. And before you know it, the whole glorifying God thing, ironically, it becomes all about us. It's all about what I'm doing or not doing, what I I should be doing, but I'm not yet doing in my marriage, my parenting, and my spiritual disciplines, and my financial stewardship, my my personal evangelism. The, The glory of God becomes this theoretical goal of our life that just feels perpetually out of reach. Brothers and sisters, the word of God in Ephesians 1 is given by God to you to free you from that burden. God wants to free you from that burden. Not in a way that leaves you unconcerned about the character of your conduct. But in a way that leaves the weight of responsibility for the great goal of the universe on the only shoulders that's big enough to carry it. God himself. Why do I say that? Because the glory of God isn't fundamentally a human mission we accomplish. It's a divine enterprise in which we are caught up and carried along. Those aren't the same thing. So so when I said earlier that, that the glory of God and the good of his people is the goal of our salvation, what do we automatically think? We automatically think that glorifying God is something we achieve through what We do. But what does Ephesians 1 tell us? It tells us that glorifying God is something God achieves through what he does. God did not choose you, adopt you, redeem you, and seal you, and then cut you loose to pay him back by glorifying his name. No, okay? God begins a God-glorifying work in us, and God completes a God-glorifying work in us. As as Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus is what? He's not just the founder of our faith, he's the what? John Buffington. The perfecter of our faith. John and I were talking about this. He's the perfecter. So think about that. Really practical. Why does God put us in situations where we feel powerless to glorify him? Powerless to do what he's called us to do. Situations where we're very aware, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we have this treasure, as Mindy prayed earlier, in a jar of clay. Why does God do that? 
Well, he does that to show you and me and everyone around us that the surpassing greatness of the power, think the glory of the power, doesn't come from me, it comes from God. And so I don't, I don't know every difficult situation in your life right now, friend. I, I don't know all the areas of your life where this morning you feel absolutely powerless, completely unable, do anything to glorify God. But I know this. I know this. It's not an accident or a sign that something's wrong that you feel that way. God has you right where he wants you. He's got you right where he wants you. Right, right where he needs to have you. Because those are the situations where he trains us to believe and rejoice with the prophet Jonah, Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and when God does the work, God gets the glory. So, so what do we say? We say this, Lord, this feels utterly pointless and futile. There's no way this lot that you have assigned me will ever culminate in anything remotely glorious to you because I can't hack this lot. And God says, child, do not despise what you cannot fully understand. Watch and wait and see me glorify myself through your weakness. You're not here by accident. You're here by design. I haven't brought you here to show you how unlike me you are. I have brought you here to magnify my power and glory through your life. You might not see it right now, but I will not fail to bring it to pass. I think Jesus' words in John 12, 28 could not be more comforting. What does he pray? Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. Fearful saint, hear this voice saying this anew over your life today. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it. My name in your story, my name in your past. And I'm going to glorify it again. So, so, do we have to strive to do all things for the glory of God? Yes. Resounding yes, we must. But we do it with the happy confidence that it's ultimately God who ensures that he will be glorified in and through our life. That's where our confidence lies. So, no matter how important or significant your role, your present role in your family and your marriage and your church and this community feels to you right now, know this. If God's glory is a football, you can tell where my mind's been. <laughs> if God's glory is a football, he never tosses the ball into your hands. He starts with the ball. He keeps the ball. And he runs with the ball until he reaches the goal and finishes the work he began. And that means, weary saint, there's, there's great freedom for you in this word. 
that the great cause of God's glory in your life is a work of God from start to finish. Because your salvation is a work of God from start to finish. And when God does the work, God gets the glory. So stop, stop anxiously laboring under the burden of glorifying God. Live to please God with a happy confidence that he is glorifying himself through you and he will not fail to glorify himself through you. In Christ, friend, your life could not be more significant. And the purpose of your life, the goal of your life, the magnification and and exaltation of the glory of God, that's not something that you have to accomplish or you have to fulfill. That's a purpose God will accomplish, a mission God will fulfill if you're willing to follow him. The glory of God, the good of his people, It's the goal of our salvation. And because he does the work, he gets all the glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim to you, along with the Apostle Paul, that your name is seriously blessed. Blessed be your name, God. Whether we are black or white or Hispanic or Indian or African or Asian or all the above, or together we join the song of the angels as we conclude this series and we say as one blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God, and not to us, forever and ever.